Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. So uh, when we're thinking about what's happening around the world, uh, we just heard there at the top of the hour um, that in relationship to the U.N. General Assembly, the president of the United States is going to be offering a speech about religious persecution tomorrow or religious liberty, depending on which side of that coin you're reading. Um, I think it's important for you to know that some of the greatest religious liberty, uh, religious rights offenders around the globe are China, India and Russia. Obviously, North Korea tops that list. It always does. We talk frequently about that. But when you think about the relationships that uh, that we have around the globe, North Korea, China, India and Russia, um, maybe you are aware of the relationships that the president of the United States has with uh, the leaders of Russia, China and North Korea, because those have been in the headlines a lot. Maybe you're not aware of the relationship that he has with President Modi of of India, uh, nor the religious liberty offenses of that country. And so just yesterday, the president of the United States walked hand in hand, uh, circling the floor of the NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, uh, before a crowd of uh, 50,000 Indian Americans. Now, these Indian Americans are people of descent from the nation of India, not Native Americans, although it did sound as if at one point the president was a little bit um, confused about those two identities. Um, when he said we're going to take care of our Indian American citizens before we take care of illegal immigrants that want to pour into our country, I'm not sure he recognizes that the people sitting in front of him are all immigrants. Uh, it is an immigrant community that has migrated here from the nation of India, which is halfway around the world. We're not talking here about Native Americans. And so um, there are some distinctions that uh, I think are important. We need to be mindful of them. Uh, we also need to recognize that uh, that India is a great offender when it comes to religious liberty. And so you and I need to be aware of that. We need to have that as one of our talking points in terms of, you know, it's fine for the president of the United States to be challenging other countries around the world um, on the issues of religious liberty. And he's certainly doing a good job on that front here at home. But when we're talking uh, about the threats, the the chief offenders around the globe, we're also talking about the people um, whom the president of the United States often speaks with great affection uh, about these particular men. And so if you're not aware, uh, in India, um, we have reports, new reports. I mean, uh, it's it's illegal to be a Christian. And so we're talking here about persecution against Christians in this uh, Hindu-majority country um, and where conversion is illegal. And so they're now forcing nonprofit organizations like Compassion International Um, which was forced to halt its ministry to more than 147,000 children just a couple of years ago. They're now forcing other nonprofit organizations that are Christian-based to basically sign pledges that they won't talk about the Christian faith. Now, I just want you to ask yourself for a moment, could you go be a Christian in, in a Christian ministry, in a Christian mission somewhere around the world, and sign a pledge to that government that you won't talk about Jesus? 
just just asking. I'm just asking. I wouldn't be able to do that. I, I'd I'd be mm-hmm. that'd be a challenge for me. Um, and then obviously we've got real challenges in China uh, on the religious liberty front as well. We have talked about what is happening there to millions of uh, ethnic Muslim Uyghurs. Uh, and we've also talked there about what's happening to churches. China is now making churches replace the Ten Commandments with quotes from President Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what's going on in terms of uh, religious persecution on some of those fronts. Okay, next up, I'm going to talk with Bruce Ashford. He's the provost of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm going to ask him why he's not a pacifist. Um, that's an interesting conversation. Uh, and we're also going to talk about um, praying to plants, by the way. Not not legit, just in case you were wondering. We'll be right back. Bruce Ashford is the provost of a Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is an author, um, and he is one of my favorite conversation partners here on the program. Bruce, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to do my very, very best to um, not mock people who are obviously genuinely confused. Um, and that is, I think, the great challenge when we're going to when we are going to lead off with a story where. Um, you and I both know uh, we could say things like lettuce, like the vegetable, and we could follow it by the word pray. Um, this could be a lettuce pray segment of the show. And so how do we even talk about uh, praying to plants, which is something that is now being openly, publicly advocated by a seminary in the United States of America? It's a Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Um, openly advocating that we pray to plants. How do we how do we have a conversation about this without mocking people who are obviously genuinely confused? Well, you know, liberal revisionist theology. Every time uh, you know people engage in that kind of theology where they don't believe that the Bible is the revealed word of God, every time they do it, it's silly season. And what normally happens is that uh, the theology that emerges is something that's actually non-Christian and anti-Christian. So it, what you've got here, in the Bible, every time a person prays to it, had prays to or worships an inanimate object, a plant, a tree, a statue, every single time they're rebuked across the board. So uh, what you have at Union is you've got a return to pagan paganism and to a kind of pantheism where uh, we we pray to plants and, and statues and so forth. Uh, pantheism is the view that everything in the world is God, that uh, there's kind of a one-world soul. And, uh, you know, there are Eastern religions that are pantheistic at heart. So it's either pantheism or paganism. Paganism is the view that, uh, in, in, in certain forms of paganism, that spirits enter into plants. And I'm not sure where they're headed with this at, at Union, but it's, uh, it's absurd. Well, it is an absurd. Object. Yeah. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, Union Seminary posted on its official institutional Twitter feed um, a, a photograph of what is presumably a group of students in the context of a chapel service. That's actually the way they describe it in the context of a chapel service engaged in something called extra activism, a ritual liturgical response, a worship setting where in community they confessed, this is, I'm reading directly here, from the official Twitter feed of the seminary. 
where they confessed the harm done to plants, speaking directly in repentance to the plants. Um, so um, I, I want to have this conversation, Bruce. Remind us what a seminary is supposed to be and why this is a departure from what a seminary is supposed to be doing. Yeah, so, you know, at our seminary, our purpose statement and our, our you know, our vision statement, I think, is representative of what seminaries ought to do. And that is we, we exist to uh, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by serving the church and fulfilling the Great Commission. So our job is uh, to s- submit to God's vision for Christian ministry by submitting to his word. And with revisionists, liberal and revisionist seminaries, they don't believe that God has revealed himself in the Bible. And so all they're left with is uh, basically urban legends of Jesus, whatever they think Jesus might have actually said and done, because they can't believe exactly what the Bible says that he said and did. And they believe parts of it, but they don't believe other parts. You could call it a kind of a form of leopard theology, where uh, they think their spots of the Bible are true and spots of the Bible are not, and that they're inspired to spot the spots. And uh, basically, it allows people to create an image of Jesus that's kind of their own reflection. And their own reflection is always heavily shaped by the surrounding uh, society and culture. So it's just uh, you've got some revisionists who have uh, been watching MSNBC and are are afraid of uh, climate change. And they're going to shape their Christianity in light of that instead of vice versa. All right. So I want to bring um, Romans 1 into conversation with this. And maybe you and I will leave this conversation here as we go to break. Um, I think that Romans chapter one, if we're going to if we're going to look for the spots, if we're going to try to spot the spots in Scripture that apply easily here today, um, Romans one, verse 25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Uh Amen. Bruce Ashford and I will be right back. I'm going to ask him why he is not a pacifist. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We often need um, help thinking through the issues of our day, understanding who we are as Christians in a very complex time, uh, a very complex day. The conversation about war, the conversation about um, taking up arms, and the conversation about pacifism is a conversation that um, cycles around in, you know, from time to time, depending on the headline news of the day. And so recently we had John Bolton um, leave the Trump administration, and uh, and we will now be going through the process of the confirmation of another uh, national security advisor. Um, Bruce Ashford, why are you not a pacifist? Yeah, so, you know, I'm actually writing a book right now on the ethics warfare. I've done a little bit of consulting work for a couple uh, military and intelligence branches in our nation, and there's always the question is, you know, if you're a Christian, doesn't that mean you're a pacifist? And so I'm not a pacifist, and I don't think the Bible teaches that we should be in this time before the Lord returns. So there's basically three different categories that a person can fall in when it comes to war. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have uh, militarists. And mil- militarists, you could call them crusaders, jihadis, militarists, I mean, uh, whatever you want to call them. And they're idealists, and they want to achieve peace by picking up the, their weapons and um, attacking any country that they think is evil, right? At the other end of the spectrum, you've got pacifists who are also idealists. They want an ideal world, 
and they think they can achieve it by laying down their weapons. In the middle, in between those two, is what we call the just war tradition, and uh, it is rooted not only in the the Bible, but also in Greco-Roman thought. And the just war tradition is a realist tradition that says, hey, listen, we're never going to achieve an ideal world. There's uh, evil in the human heart. So we can't achieve an ideal world by picking up our weapons and eradicating evil, and we can't achieve it by laying down our weapons and teaching everyone to be a sheep. Um, And so, uh, in other words, sometimes we have to go to war. uh, And so... I think maybe it would be helpful if I could really quickly give what the arguments are for pacifism and then uh, give my answer to those. Does that work? Yeah, that would be terrific. Okay, so just really briefly, pacifists normally argue that the Old Testament is utterly irrelevant, that it's not relevant in any way. Uh, From the New Testament, they go to – So can I just – can I I ask you to pause there for a second? Can I even understand the New – can I even understand the New Testament? Can I even understand who Jesus is if I – if I – say that the Old Testament is completely irrelevant and not worth paying any attention to? Not even possible. Every time yeah. Paul shared the gospel, he talked about Israel. Yeah, I, mean, I just, so, I mean, he, so he, I just think. He's talking to pagans. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm going to be, a, if I'm going to be a Christian, I can't, uh, you know, I can't slice off uh, the Old Testament and say that it's not relevant. I can't even understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. Okay, sorry. Go on to number two. Or actually, let me just go ahead and uh, while we're answering the Old Testament uh, thing, just mention that in the Old Testament, there are two types of teaching, uh, three types of teaching about war. One is that sometimes God actually commanded Israel to go on a crusade. But crusade in the Old Testament is only okay when God commands the war and leads the war. All right. It's never it was never okay for Israel to do on its own. And when Israel went to war, there were rules about how to go to war and how not to, all right? Like in the book of Amos, they were told, for example, don't burn the the enemy nation's food supplies. Don't mutilate and torture their uh, their warriors and so forth. So the Old Testament passages do have relevance, varying levels of relevance. Um, Pacifists also go to New Testament passages where Jesus says, hey, don't do the eye for eye thing. Hey, be a peacemaker. You know, love your enemies. Um and they say that they, they then take that teaching, which it, and say that this necessitates pacifism. But I would come back and say that those teachings are about our interpersonal relationships. That we should not be people who are vengeful. That if someone does something wrong to us, our first impulse shouldn't be to strike them back, but to reach out to them, uh, because what we want to do is draw them into the kingdom. But that doesn't mean that uh, that that a nation can't use lethal force to protect its people. And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, pacifists always go to Matthew 26:52, where Peter tries to take out his sword and, and protect Jesus from being taken away. And Jesus rebukes him. But that, is, that isn't Jesus rebuking all people ever from defending themselves. That was Jesus saying, I have a very specific and unique mission, which is to die on a cross, to pay for the sins of the world, and then to rise from the dead, then to ascend to the right hand of, of God the Father. And you can't block that with a sword. And so Jesus has a very unique and specific mission, and it's not exactly the same mission as ours. And one of the ways that we know that is that, I mean, look, look, Jesus, he used a bullwhip in the temple, John 2. He told his disciples to carry swords to protect themselves in Luke 22, 36. He used illustrations like in Luke 14 about kings, when kings would be justified in going to war and when they would not. And then we know in Revelation 19, when Christ returns to set the world to rights, he is coming back as a warrior this time not as a suffering uh, suffering servant. 
Um, and then finally, uh, pacifists always go to the passion narrative and say that this is the paradigm for how Christians live, that we allow people to kill us and we give no defense. And I want to say that so on the one hand, yes, the passion narrative is a paradigm for us uh, in our interpersonal relations with people, that we are to have this sort of humility that Christ had, that we're not to be people who are striking, always striking back. But on the other hand, Jesus' mission was unique. We aren't called to die on a cross, and we're called to um, live out our faith. And the Bible teaches very clearly um, in Romans 13 that the sword or that weapons are legitimately used by the government. And so um, God ordained government to, to wield the sword to protect us from threats outside of our nation or inside of our nation. And so we ought to support our nation in the just use of violence. Um, so I, the phrase that I use a lot of times is we, we want to pray for peace and hope for it, but also prepare for war in case we need to. And I think, Bruce, when, yeah, when we talk about the just use of violence, we're talking about the suppression of evil. Like, right, when we when we yes. as a people can identify, um, you know, globally a, a genuine threat against humanity and we say to ourselves, we have some kind of moral obligation to intervene um, lest millions of people be slaughtered. Um, we we say to ourselves, uh, we cannot sit idly by. We have in the past sat idly by while millions of people have been slaughtered. Um, and we now collectively regret that. And so yeah. I, I think this is part of the challenge that, that we face. Um, you know, as people in a culture who are largely Christian, we face this challenge of knowing when when should we when are we called to uh to intervene globally in ways that would require violence yeah you know augustine the great uh early church theologian um argued that th- that war is often a form of neighbor love you know and mm. in several ways one is i'm you know if i go to war you know when our when our navy seals and our green berets go to war now because a lot of our, our wars are, are small wars fought with special ops guys when they go to war, uh, their acts, uh, what they do is a way of loving their neighbor here in the U.S., protecting us, but also loving their distant neighbor. When they liberated Afghanistan from rule of the, the Taliban, that was a, a form of love. The people of Afghanistan did not want the Taliban in charge. They were being abused, brutally abused by the, by the uh, Taliban. And so although it may seem counterintuitive, if we're, if we're waging war for the right reason to correct a specific injustice, um, then I, th- I think it's an act of love. You bring up a great point. And, and by, you know, I think a, a lot of times the idealists in the world, whether they're the pacifists or um, the crusaders, don't understand that evil resides in the human heart. They think that if they can just do a, a certain actions, either taking up their weapons, crusaders, or putting down their weapons, pacifists, that they can get rid of evil. But you can't get rid of evil, and that's why you have to be a realist. Um, and realize if there's always going to be evil people doing evil things, then we're always going to have to be prepared to use lethal force if necessary. So, Bruce, my um, my balance of verses related to this, um, I want to be a person who lives in James 3.18. I want to be a person who is sowing in peace in order that God might reap unto himself a harvest of righteousness. But I live just as equally in Ephesians 6, and I don't go out there to be a peace sower uh, without ar- without armoring up every single day. 
So, you know, I, ar- I armor up yeah. and then I go sow peace. And so I think that's what I hear you saying in terms of, you know, being being on balance in this conversation about uh, being a realist and the world in which we live. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, actually. You should write an article on that. Okay, and, and I, should, I should. I'll, I should do I'll it with you. I'll get a radio show, and I'll invite <laughs> you on. <laughs> hey, I love talking so. with you. I love the way you stimulate our thinking on so many fronts. Um, thank you for doing what you faithfully do at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, that is Provost Bruce Ashford. You can check out. He's got all kinds of stuff. He's he's Most recently, he's got a piece at LifeWayVoices.com. Uh, talking about why he's not a pacifist, if you want to read a little bit more about what we talked about here today. Bruce, thanks so much. Thanks. It's been great being on the show, Carmen. Happy writing. We'll be right back. So each week I like to talk with uh, David Aikman about what's going on around the globe uh, he and I are going to talk um, today. He doesn't even know this yet, but I'm going to ask him, you know, what about the 600,000 people that are stranded around the globe and what the British government is going to do to repatriate those people. Um, what would you do if you were stranded overseas, if your if your travel comp- company shut down while you were on a trip that was sponsored by that travel company? I don't know. It's kind of a crazy story. So the tour company, Thomas Cook, shut down overnight. It literally collapsed. The British government uh, refused to prop it up. That's an interesting conversation in and of itself. It leads us to talk about things this morning with David Aikman that we didn't even have on the calendar. But yes, he and I will also talk about what's going on with Saudi Arabia, Iran, and U.S. sanctions, and what's going on in the British Parliament. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The late Rodney Dangerfield's I Don't Get No Respect jokes were pretty funny, but it's no laughing matter when a teenager is disrespectful toward his parents. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. While it's true that you can't force your child to respect you, treating someone with respect is an entirely different matter. Showing respect is a conscious decision, regardless of whether you like someone or not. And expecting your teen to be respectful should have nothing to do with how they feel at the moment. So if your teen's been showing signs of disrespect, let him know that things are going to be different from now on. The longer you wait to address the problem, the worse it will become. Requiring respect now will teach your teen to apply civil behavior in all areas of life. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me again today is Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Good morning, Carmen. Very nice to hear your voice again. Oh, it's great to talk with you. Now, I ex- had expected to lead off this morning with a conversation about the U- the UK's Supreme Court and Boris Johnson and the the suspension of Parliament. But instead, we're talking about another uh, development over the weekend that, frankly, is happening right now, and it's pretty exciting. I don't know if exciting is the right word. It's devastating, like, right? Thomas Cook, uh, the 140-year-old travel agency that every U.K. person is very familiar with, 
has become insolvent and has gone to, into compulsory liquidation, you go on their website and they denounce it as insolvent. But in the meantime, you've got about 180 or 190,000 British tourists stranded somewhere from Palma de Mallorca to southern Spain. And the question is, how are they all going to get home? How are the tour guides going to get home? How are the employees going to get home? And so they put together a, a, a plan called Operation Matterhorn to try and rescue all these people who paid their money and are stranded overseas. It's really extraordinary. So there are some 600,000 travelers affected, but about, as you've just said, 190,000 of them currently uh, needing to be the, the language is repatriated, like, right, the government is going to provide a way for them to return home. Um, but some of them, they don't quite know, do they get to continue to stay in the hotels that they're in? Um, it's, it, it is, and then 18,000 people literally are now without jobs. And so how do those, right. how do all of those employees, including airline pilots and all kinds of other things, this, this tour company, I think it's unusual for Americans to think about a, a tour company like Thomas Cook. It's a 178 year old yeah. company, serves millions of clients. Um, and it really is the seemingly the premier travel agency of of Great Britain. That's right. It has been for many years, but it made some very foolish mistakes after uh, it came under new leadership a few years ago. It started buying up rival companies, got into serious cash flow problems, and eventually everything started going downhill beginning probably two years ago, and they have been able to turn it around ever since. Yeah, really, the stunning photographs coming out uh, now out of Gatwick and uh, and other airports that that obviously have uh, huge portions of their um, terminals committed to Thomas Cook. Um, and so obviously those are vacant and empty right now. That's a little it's strange to look at. Um, but we just want to be, we certainly want to be lifting up in prayer people who are traveling abroad, um, and and we want to be lifting up all of these 18,000 Thomas Cook employees. This would be, this would just really be, um, wow, uh, just uh, challenging is, is an insufficient word. It's hard for us to imagine here in the United States how something could literally collapse overnight. Right, exactly. I mean, it's... Uh quite unprecedented. Anything of this size going south, uh, literally, as you say, overnight. And the government has been badgered to try and relieve the pressure, but they've decided not to do anything and just to let the chips fall out commercially, as they do, uh, while the company picks itself up or tries to. Yeah, and, you know, for those for those of us who... Uh, who believe in a free market economy like we understand you know when the government says hey you know look we're not we're not in the business of you know of bailing out commercial industries um here's the here's the quote from number 10 downing street um we would have to re in, in terms of like why they didn't uh use taxpayer money to bail the company out uh they said well we would have to repatriate people later down the road um and we would have lost more money in that process quote it's 
It is obviously a very competitive market. It isn't the government's role to prop up companies when this sort of issue arises. Mm-hmm. Our decision was that injecting cash into this situation was not going to make it any better. Um, so we just uh, we will certainly be watching this story. Hey, what else is going on at Number Ten Downing Street? What what's up with uh, your um, your Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Parliament and the UK Supreme Court? My gosh, the UK Supreme Court is going to hand out a decision this week whether Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament was or was not against the law, and. If they decide it was against the law, then they have to decide what response to take. Should they um, order Boris Johnson to immediately reconvene Parliament? Do they have the power to do that? Um, and people have even talked about arresting him and putting him in jail. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, the political chaos in the UK this, at this point in time. I don't recall any time in the last 50 or 60 years when it's been so completely chaotic. You've got the Labour Party having its convention in Brighton, and they can't decide whether they are pro-Brexit or against Brexit. Uh, they want to do a, a new referendum, but they want to decide what they're going to do after a general election takes place. They don't know when the general election is going to come. The Liberal Democrats are flatly determined to overturn Brexit if they come into power, even though they, like all the other parties, agree that they would respect the wishes of the people who voted in the original 2016 referendum. So they're willing to overthrow that result. And it's only the conservatives, and particularly Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers, who are determined to get out of the EU as fast as possible, with or without an agreement. All right, David, when we come back, let's um, let's pivot. Let's talk about uh, the Ukraine um, and its relationship with the United States of America. Let's talk about military aid and how the United States uses military funds around the globe in terms of our international relationships. And then um, I do want to touch on what's going on with Saudi Arabia and Iran in terms of U.S. sanctions. So all of that next here with David Aikman. We'll be right back. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We are continuing our conversation with uh, Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. We're talking about all things international. So let's um, let's turn our attention. Let's pivot toward the Ukraine. Um, this conversation about U.S. military funding, this question about the conversations that the U.S. president uh, has been having, uh, has had over time, the surprise of senior Ukrainian officials um, blindsided over the summer when they heard that the United States might withhold security assistance to the country. All of these things are now wound up in a whistleblower case here in the United States. Um, the president has now acknowledged that in a July phone call with the president of Ukraine, um, he did not only congratulate uh, congratulate the president, but they did turn their attention to a conversation about former Vice President Joe Biden and his son and dealings with the Ukraine. And there was then also some conversation uh, about U.S. military aid. 
What um, when you look at this story from across the pond, what do you see? Well, I think it's um, it's all completely bound up in mutual accusations between the Democrats and the Republicans of interference in the electoral process by using a foreign government allegedly to investigate the suspected or alleged wrongdoings, in this case, of uh, Joe Biden's son. The allegation that he was involved in corrupt dealings within the Ukraine and uh, supposedly, nobody quite knows what this, what actually happened. Supposedly, President Trump asked President Zelensky of Ukraine to investigate Trump's dealings. Uh, and sorry, to investigate the junior Biden's dealings to see if there were any information there that might compromise uh, Biden's uh, uh, Joe Biden, the father, his candidacy for the Democratic uh, nomination for president. It's all very murky, and it's much of the case is sort of he said, I thought, she said. It's really not at all clear what the actual truth is behind all these allegations. All right. So let's then, um, since you and I agree, there's not a whole lot more we can say about things we don't yet know a lot about. So I appreciate that, David. Let's um, let's pivot toward um, this ongoing Challenge uh, related to Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, U.S. sanctions, the meeting of the U.N., the prospect that the president of the United States might might meet with uh, Iranian president President uh, Rouhani. I don't know. Give us your uh, give us your take on on all of that. Well, the U.S. has been put in a very difficult position because it's the chief defender of Saudi Arabia from any external threat. And it's been confirmed that, or at least the U.S. military says it's been confirmed, that the missiles that hit the uh, Saudi refineries last week were, in fact, um, aimed at the refineries from, from Iran. And the question is, since the Saudis agree that that is the most likely thing that happened, how do they respond to Iran? Or does the United States respond with its own military activity? The evidence at this point is that President Trump is very reluctant to get into even a modest uh, military confrontation with Iran. He doesn't want to get into another Middle East war, and he realizes that a a full-blown engagement with Iran could be absolutely disastrous for the whole region. So, David, when um, when when we look at things going on here in the United States of America and our relationships globally, um, I think it's fair to say we are uh, we are somewhat uncertain about the way the rest of the world now views the United States because our foreign policy has become um, I'll use it unpredictable. In well, in terms of your in terms, go ahead. I'm sorry, that's not 
completely true, if I may say so, Carmen, not to contradict you, but for example, President Trump this week is going to be speaking at the United Nations on the dangers of persecution of Christians all over the world. No other American president has spoken up publicly on behalf of seriously persecuted minorities like Christians. And Trump is going to do that. So I think that's a very clear sort of sign of leadership for on behalf of democratic states who do enjoy religious freedom to support those small communities which are in danger of serious persecution and indeed liquidation as faith communities. That's a major new initiative, I think. So I think that's a helpful distinction to make, and, and that's where I was headed with my question. Are we right in, in you know, in in feeling the way we do sometimes that our foreign policy has become unpredictable. And what you're saying is maybe there are new ways in which uh, American foreign policy is um, uh, is advocating things that it has not uh, necessarily seen as priorities in the past and the prioritization of uh, religious minorities, people uh, of, of minority religious faith around the world, um, I think that the right. president highlights the concern for Christians around the globe certainly more often uh, than others in the past have. But he's also uh, it's not exclusive to the concern for Christians as religious minorities. So, yeah, we actually uh, we talked a little bit about anticipating that speech tomorrow in the first hour of today's program. So thank you for returning our attention right. to that. It's uh, really, really critical. Oh. Right. Thank you. And then yeah. we've got Hong Kong is in the 16th week of the demonstrations, they're becoming more violent, people are getting beaten up, and I think the likelihood of something fairly drastically clamping down, particularly as we approach the date of October 1st, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, the likelihood of serious engagement by the Hong Kong police is increasing daily and I, I think it's a very unfortunate situation all right david let's uh let's be sure we return our attention to that first thing next monday morning again thank you so much as always for being with us that's david aikman from godspeed magazine we'll be right back All right, friends, uh, I'm going to end where we started out uh, our time together, and that is with the question, where in the word are you today? Where in the word are you today? Um, I am encouraging you to be a person who not only abides in Christ, but a person who opens the word of God before we set foot in the world that God so loves. Uh, The only way for you and I to rightly be in the world is if we have already been actively in the word in order that when the pressures arise, when uh, when the things of life press in on us, what comes out of us uh, is is the very word of God, are the things of the Holy Spirit, our grace and truth, uh, that we would respond, uh, that we would respond to actions and interactions in ways that honor Jesus and bring glory to God the Father. That is what we are in the world to do today, and I want you to be encouraged in that. It's always a a pleasure and a privilege to gather with you. Um, So thank you for taking us along today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. You can visit us online at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.